Welcome to Cure the Boot. My name is Dan. This is Wayne. I'm Dale. And my name's Chad. So, show topic for today. Are we doing a bonus episode, not a negative, so you don't need to rush your children out of the room. (laughs) Broder's not here either. But this one comes to us from Jonathan Bolina, who I would swear we just used a topic from him, which is fine. I mean, if he wants to be a co-producer on the show or something, (laughs) that's fine. But he suggested a topic, and I don't know how he phrased it, because Wayne gathered these. And the gist of the topic is varied entertainment. What are we into right now? So I'm going to go through a couple topics here, and we're going to go around the table, and we're going to talk about what we're into and why, all right? But here's some parameters. One, you're going to talk about one thing, all right? So like for the first one, we'll probably do video games, all right? So it's got to be a video game, one, not 25. (laughs) And secondly, it has to be something either within the past year or if you've been in a long drought, it can be older, but it has to be recent. We're not talking the oldies, but the goodies, unless that's what you're playing right now. And if that's the case, that's cool. But what are you into right now? And this is before the people who hate video games just stop the recording here. This is not a video game app? That's no, correct. There's, multiple, so there's different multiple different ones. Video games. Video game, book, TV show, movies. Movies, yeah. And gotcha. we're, we're going to see how many we get through in the course of about an hour. But, yeah, I've got several written down here. And I was just kind of looking at video game. But if you want, we can start with books. So, anyone have a preference on which one we start with? Let's start with video games. All right, we'll start with video games. All right. Dale so, doesn't play video games. Well, that's, I mean, it's fine. If he's, I don't. Since when? I thought you said you didn't. Never mind. So, well, I mean, if he's got a pass, he's got a pass. Did but, you just not hear all his going on about Skyrim? Yeah. No, just a minute ago? Not about really. how he, he wants Skyrim and fully immersive VR. No. What you got to understand is for any episode of Fear the Boot, there's a spin-up period before we hit record and actually go into it. And it's fine. It's totally legit that there's this spin-up period. You know, we got to relax. There's got to be some banter back and forth. We talk about what we're going to talk about. Dinner. Chad pretends to care. I wait. That's what I do. I want to go. I want to talk. I don't care. We don't have to plan it out. Let's talk. Let's go. But over the years since we've been doing this, I understand that's me and that that's not everyone else. And even my way of approaching it isn't necessarily good. You do have to relax and get talking and, and get into that mindset. And so I don't want to mess that up for anybody. So I lean back in my chair. My mic was all cattywampus, as my mom says. And cattywampus. I have no clue what yep. that means, but I like it for some reason. Yep. I've heard the phrase a lot. I've. I don't don't know. Is that on your word of day calendar? Maybe it is now. But but this sounds like something Chris would say. Probably. My mom is really old. My Chris is really old. It's like some Minnesota term, right? It is hot dish is all (laughs) cattywampus or whatever. Yes, because doesn't even sound like Southern dialect. I'm gonna guess that it's like an old radio show or TV show or like a character or something that like Bugs Bunny but didn't make it to mainstream. Yeah, or that or somebody was on live radio and was about to drop an f bomb. They're like, well, I mean, that's all cattywampus. Yeah. Yeah. Now, you see, to me, that sounds more like uh, an, uh, a monster on the ice planet of Hoth. Well, I mean, no, my mom's not really into that. So mm-hmm. it, it's got to be more of a boomer sort of thing. Huh. But uh, but anyway, that's my thing is, I don't know if you notice this, I lean back, put my arms up. I don't say anything. Because if I if I complain, A, that's not right of me to complain, and B, it slows everything down. And because it's like, well, what's wrong? Well, this is wrong. Well, we do it for that. Okay. Well, and then there's this whole conversation. So I just sit and I relax and I wait. 
Okay. So Chad's stroke so talk I aside. Didn't, I didn't listen to anything Dale said. Okay. Okay. Glad to know that nothing I said <laughs> Great. mattered. But I didn't listen to Dan or Wayne either. So, fair enough. Games. Okay. Wayne. So not special. I, what are you into right now? Why I, is it grabbing your interest? I, I've been playing a lot of Dragon Quest Builder on the Switch. Uh, Dragon, I don't know what that is. Dragon Quest Builder is kind of like Minecraft in that but it is dragons? a building game, but there's a story. There, You're progressing through a full story with NPCs, and they're helping you build things, and you get missions, and... Just overall, it is a lot of what I enjoyed about Minecraft from the creative standpoint of making things that look really cool and do things, but with a story. And there's dragons in the world. I haven't dealt with a dragon yet in this game. Can you there ride was a dragon them? in the first one. Can you ride them? I haven't seen one yet in this game. Well, I mean, you'd think that would be a selling point on the game. It's like, you can build Maybe. a saddle and ride a dragon. Well, dragon Quest was this huge series of games, mm-hmm. and this is just a offshoot of that series. Oh, so it's not a oh, name dragon coincidence. Quest. Right, so it's it not actually, a name coincidence. Okay, so I thought it was just a name coincidence. Nope. In the other games, you're the big hero. In right, the, right. In yeah. this game, you are not the big hero. Yeah, dragon. You are a builder who dragon builds things. Dragon Quest, from my understanding, is kind of... Fi- it's like Final Fantasy, less story, more fight, and... Yeah, it's I never this, played one. It's the same series except this is an offshoot series where instead of the being the big hero you're doing building things huh i've really enjoyed it it just it brings back all of the fun i had in minecraft during the times i was playing it and creating things yeah but like i said there's also a story and more fighting things as well and yeah i like builder games too which is one of the things i'm going to talk about but you caught my attention with that one because one of the missions in there sounded like it was straight out of Christmas Vacation because it might as well have been titled Shitter's Full. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, one of the things you have in the game is when, once you build a toilet, I don't want to call it a bathroom because there is a bathroom there that is baths. Yeah. But yeah. there's a toilet and they'll yeah. line up to use it. And then you go into the toilet and you harvest the toilet to get materials to make manure. And yeah. Make other things out of it. Because it's a dirt closet, not a water closet. They call this uh, night dirt. Yeah. Night yeah, because that's yeah. what it's called. It's but called night dirt because the guys come yep. around at night and it's like, you know how there's like a coal hatch and they put coal in? Yep. Well, this is like the opposite direction. There's the guy who gets the night dirt from your dirt closet with a little hatch and pulls it out. Yep. They make yeah. all these jokes about what it act, what it is it's poop. without actually saying that it's poop. Yeah. They also collect urine, too. They collect urine because tanneries have to use urine. So that is actually something built into the game as you're harvesting the toilets mm-hmm. to craft with it. And you enjoy that aspect of it? I mean, maybe there's a really good poop collection gameplay. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I see the potential. Mm-hmm. I mean, quite frankly, I think Poop Pueblo press, could press, be a yeah. Minecraft-style building game. You need to collect poop? Press F yeah. for f- my life <laughs> where instead of a pickaxe going to rocks you just take a shovel to a toilet mm-hmm. and that's the only block you can harvest and you have to build your world out of it that's right it amuses me that they included that in the game gotcha so all right chad now what i have to pick no I one game that i'm playing currently yeah, yeah. Or, or currently or very I'm, recently i play a lot of videos yeah that's fine so yeah. what what just pick one Oh, just one? One okay. that's really moving your needle right now. I'm playing Assassin's Creed Origins, which you said it breaks your controller. I'm sorry, Don played it on a controller, didn't break it. You had a controller. No, they've, well, they've changed the controllers. Because mm. it used to be... See, you have a controller. Well, had, yeah, until mm. it got broken. Mm. Because for anyone who doesn't know, Assassin's Creed Origin, one of the things they changed over the prior Bayek Assassin's Creed game 
was they moved the attack button instead of being one of the primary four, you know, like A, B, X, Y type buttons or on the PlayStation's what square, circle, triangle, X. They moved it up to the right bumper, what on PlayStation we call R1. And the problem is on the earlier Xbox One controllers, that was a hard click analog button. Mm. And so if you're using that for your primary attack, you're clicking it more than it's got clicks. Yeah, I mean, exactly. Yeah. I mean, you, you destroy yeah. that thing in no time flat. But after I destroyed that controller and I went and bought a newer one, the newer ones have changed it to a much softer touch. And so it's not as prone to breaking. Because I don't think any game was ever... I, they just didn't imagine that anyone was going to sure. use it like that. But continue, Assassin's Creed Origin. Well, and I, I played on PC, keyboard and mouse. I don't have that kind of mechanical yeah. spring thing there. Because my mechanical keyboard broke about a year ago, but that's a different story. No, I'm playing Assassin's Creed Origin. It's really good because the character is very interesting. The Bayak of Siwa is who you play. He has good relationships. The Medjai. He has really good interactions with people, right? He's a consistent character who cares, and he has reasons for caring about the things he cares about. Yeah. And uh, it's a revenge tale because his kid was killed. I won't get into how his kid was killed because it's kind of actually convoluted. But his boy was killed at a very young age. And basically, this is his path of what he calls justice, but it's revenge, even though they these people do need to be eliminated because they're they're horrible people. What's really good about it is the side quests, not the main plot. The main plot is all right, but the side quests are cool, especially when the quest involves a kid, because it's like as soon as you, you learn that the quest involves a kid, it's like, oh, shit. Someone's messing with a kid, and this is like Egyptian John Wick, and somebody messed with their dog, right? It's like there is going to be no mercy whatsoever, and you're like, oh, shit, it's on. Or Bayak, the character, the voice actor, the character, the writing, everything that makes this character within the game, he is an excellent father. He's one of those people, even though he's not real, he's one of those people who are really good with kids. And how he interacts with them is great. It, it's just very natural. It, it flows real. It's, it's extremely realistic in a story about a guy who murders. I think I have like 3,000 kills right now. <laughs> I mean, nobody has killed that many people without bombs. But it's really interesting and heartwarming that, because his character is a Magi. And the Magi in Egypt, they were the Pharaoh's bodyguards, but they were also like people who righted wrongs for the common people. People didn't have a voice, and these people made sure that they had a voice and made sure justice was done and that sort of thing. And they, they're very respected. So in a game about basically killing people for revenge, it is filled with you going around Egypt being a good person, but like righting wrongs, helping people. And it is from the most mundane. I was on a boat. I'm a musician. The boat got boarded, and when one of the robbers slapped me, I dropped my musical instrument in the water, help. And you swim out, you pluck his musical instrument out of the water. You swim down there, and you have to try and find it. All the way to Ptolemy's guards are crushing us with taxes, and I cannot feed my family. Help me. And then you just wipe out an, an outpost with a you know garrison commander who's squeezing the locals too much. The really amazing thing about this game is I know for a fact there are people who are listening to this right now who do not, like Dale, do not play video games at all ever in their whole <laughs> life. 
<laughs> and never once. Never once. Not once. And they're not into video games. They're sitting here like, oh, I don't care. I don't care about this. So Assassin's Creed takes place in the past. I'm not going to get into the meta plot of all the games because, quite frankly, the meta plot of Assassin's Creed is banana sandwiches. It makes no f***ing sense at all. It is just the most bizarro, off-the-wall, bonkers bullshit you can imagine. But it takes place in the past. Different games take place in the Crusades or, you know, the French Revolution, the American Revolution. This one takes place in the Ptolemaic reign in Egypt. So we're talking Cleopatra, Caesar, Mark Antony, that sort of thing. And what they have done is they have recreated Egypt of that time. And they have done it as accurately as possible. I mean, they just didn't like look at a Nat, a Nat Geo and were like, okay, well, we're going to make the pyramids look like this. I mean, they, they got historians that they wanted the historical accuracy of the people, the times, the places, everything to be as, as historically accurate as possible. And they only kind of slide in their plot in between the edges and what is really amazing about that is that if you do not like video games, you have no interest in playing a video game, for six bucks, you can buy the tour version of this game, where it is the entirety of Egypt, where they have Memphis and Thebes and Alexandria and the pyramids and all of the tombs and all of the places and people and all that sort of stuff. And there is no fighting and there's no quest, there's no combat and you can't get hurt and you walk around and it is a guided tour of the history of egypt they have that for vr too don't they i'd have no idea I don't do VR. that's why i had heard the i heard about that and i think mm-hmm. that i heard i heard that they had it for vr too it, so it would be like you're actually walking around i am almost done with the game because i finished the main game finished one of the dlcs i'm about halfway through the last dlc and when i finish that because i i get this when i bought the game i am going to do the tour of egypt where they have historians walking you through Touring you around all of these places in Egypt that some of them are destroyed, but still there. Some of them are not there anymore at all, completely looted, but have been as accurately as possible recreated inside of the game world. And they talk about the, the times, the people, the places, the history, all that. Stuff. Again, no combat, no jumping. You don't have to do a jumping puzzle. You don't have to do figure anything out. You are led around on this interactive tour through the thing. And I am, I'm actually, I can't wait to finish this game so that I can do this tour of Egypt. I was like looking at Dawn. I'm like, because Dawn got me into the game. One of her friends bought her this game. And then I saw her playing. And then the Notre Dame caught on fire. And the Assassin's Creed people made a French Revolution game, which is supposed to be not that good. Called it wasn't. Uni. Yeah, which is called Uni. But one of the yeah. things they did is they used all this laser measuring, blah, blah, blah stuff to completely and as accurately as, as technologically possible recreate the Notre Dame. And so because they did that uh, several years ago to support Notre Dame and rebuilding and stuff, they put all their games on fire sale and used a lot of proceeds to help support Notre Dame. And so I picked this up really cheap and dawn picked up cheap because and she got me into it and so not only did they actually call it a fire sale because that's no they did not call call it a fire sale (laughs) dawn and i aren't playing it together it's not a multiplayer game she has her own copy she's playing through and i've actually because i play a lot more video games she does I've, i've passed her way past her in the plot and so i make sure not to play it when she's in the room and that sort of thing not gonna be supposed to and so her and i actually are talking about the game and all this sort of stuff so I am super into Assassin's Creed Origins right now. And 
I have thought the Assassin's Creed games were okay. I played like the first two and then I kind of gave up on this is like the sixth one, I think, or something like that. And uh, the, the ones before that were not very good. And I started playing this one. Holy crap. If you're into video games, you really need to pick this game up and play it because it is excellent. And if you're not into video games, you should probably consider picking it up if you're into history. Do the history tour. So, Dale, what right, non video Dan? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So, right now, I am playing Medieval 2 Total War. It's a turn based strategy game where you. So, you're dipping back in the Creative Assembly catalog. That was the last good one. <laughs> no, I, I still think Rome 2 was really good, and uh, Rome 1 was better. Total uh, Warhammer. Now that they patched the crap out of it, it was not good at release. But Warhammer, now they patched the crap out of it, I think it's really right. good. But go on. So All right. So what's it called? You pick a one of the various factions, and you conquer Europe. It's the short long. Currently, I'm playing Scotland. Uh, I've hit the, the winning condition of taking 45 territories plus Jerusalem, which is not easy whenever you're in Scotland. And now I'm just trying to conquer everybody else while I'm at it. It's an unusual goal for the Scots. Because, <laughs> I mean, we can all remember that great Scottish battle cry of, for Jerusalem, laddies. <laughs> yeah. Well, almost every single faction in the game has take Jerusalem as its every, uh, one of its conditions. Every Christian faction. Um, yeah, almost all of them. I mean, not all of them. The, the Holy Roman Empire has take Rome, mm-hmm. which they start off with like 10 territories. So they're the easy start one. You just have to take 45 territories plus Rome, which is right there. And there so, is a pagan faction as well. There is, yes. Which you uh, pretty much have to convert over to Catholicism because in, religion does influence. And as more people are converted in your empire, the more unhappy they get. And you can do a whole bunch of military conquests. You're conquering more and more Catholics. Yeah. And you just get to a point where you're like, you have to convert. Yeah. Unfortunately, yeah. I, mean, I just defeated Mexico. Yeah. Seriously. If you, oh, yeah, yeah. If you play they have the game the, long They have enough. the New World in there, too. Yeah. Yeah. If you play the game. It goes right up to Christopher Columbus. Right, actually, I'm in the 1500s at this yeah. point, so yeah, it's beyond Christopher Columbus. Mm-hmm. You can play, okay, so so you can play like the French knight, chivalric knights and that sort yeah. of stuff, and I, actually my favorite was Venice. Uh, Venice was a good one. Venice was, a, was amazing, because oh, you get this big, the bell of Venice and stuff. But, I actually preferred Sicily in the, the original. Venice is good as well, I've played them a few times. I tend to get stuck between Milan and the Byzantine Empire. Mm. You know, they tend to box me in, but... So, chivalric French knights, right? Longbow-wielding British guys, Scottish kerns, Crusades, Normans, all the Holy Roman Empire, all this stuff, right? And the New World is there, and you can play as the Aztecs. You can play like Jaguar Warriors and such. And you, you are starting at it really behind the eight ball, but you can I believe they can get ships at some point and conquer Europe, but I don't I don't remember. The Aztecs? Yeah. I don't know. I've never played. Maybe I played a mod too. But yeah. I've not played Total War Medieval. I've I've played Shogun, Shogun 2. Rome 2, Warhammer, and Warhammer 2, which were back-to-back games. I mean, Warhammer mm-hmm. 2 is based on expansion to Warhammer 1. I haven't played Medieval specifically. The closest thing I can think of to this, in terms of that context of a game world, is Europa Universalis 4, mm-hmm. which, now it doesn't have the military strategy aspects to it, but 
you can play anybody in the world, like literally anybody in the world, just about. Mm-hmm. But they box you in a bit. Where like you can kind of deviate from the plot of history, but not too far. You know, you cannot play the Creek Indians and roll out frigates. Right. It's, and, not, it's not like civilization. Yeah. It's yeah, it there's the same base. Yeah. There, there's so what's neat about medieval medieval total war, at least two is Vatican City is a is a faction. But it's a faction you can't play without mods. They have an army, so to speak, but they don't do anything with it. They don't invade. They don't take territories. But oh, yes, hope. they do. What? Seriously, right now, number two faction in my current game right now is, is the Papal the Papal, State. Papal States? Yeah. Oh, it, yeah. It's been a long time since I've played. But they have the Pope, right? So let's say you're playing England and I'm playing France, and we're both Catholic states, right? And we go to war. Well, the Pope will let us fight for a few years, but then he'll be like, you need to have peace. And then they're like, okay, you're not listening to us. If you don't make peace, I'm going to excommunicate your entire country. And 98% of your country is Catholic. So then you're like, no, man, I'm on a roll. I am going to take over everything. And then the Pope is like, boop, you excommunicado every single french person is excommunicado and now everybody hates you because all of your people are going to hell because of you and you can kind of like ride that for a little bit but then your country just goes insane and so what i would do because i i was stuck in the middle of europe and some of my stuff i would station an assassin who would just be sitting there in rome waiting until the pope declares me excommunicado and then i assassinate the pope when the new pope comes up, all sins are forgiven in celebration <laughs> of the new pope. <laughs> That's not entirely true. If you anymore, if you go after if the pope declares you excommunicated, and then you go after the pope as kind of like a revenge, you are excommunicated for the rest of the game. It doesn't if, matter who your leader is. It doesn't matter who your if they catch you. That's why you have to have a really good assassin so, okay. stationed in so the bureau in Rome. So this in the 1500s. Can you build John Huss or... I believe there's cannon, but it's like... There's arquebuses or and cannon. No, no, no. There, there's guns. No, yeah, I'm not talking guns. about guns. John Huss the person. Or can, no, no, they don't. build have... like Martin Luther or... No. no. Well, no. Zwingli or... It's been a long time. I don't think there's many named people. So you can't go into like a Reformation oh, and you, you well, can, there's Protestants. Yeah, that's what I'm talking about. Those are the guys that started the Protestant Reformation, right? Yeah, you don't get to play them, but every so often you will get an actual named person assisting one of your royalty, one of your line. Like right now, I've got William Wallace as helping one of. Uh, well, my, my point here is I, I'm using that as metaphor. No, you cannot play a say, Protestant army crushing the... the that, that's what I meant. Yeah, yeah, can you no, do what was it, 30 years war? You can do and... Eastern Orthodox, and you can do the icon- iconastic wars. You can do pagan states and any number of those wars. You can do the Moors and invade into Spain and all the way up. And if you can do it past Paris, where they were stopped the last time. Yeah. And you can do Jaguar warriors. Yeah. <laughs> Somebody has to stop the Jaguar Warriors at the Battle of Tours. (laughs) So my current video game fix is one that I did not think I would ever in my life play. Hatiotofo Boyfriend? Yes. Hateful Boyfriend. Hateful Boyfriend. Which I understand actually has a good story to it. No. So I just came off of this kick of playing Subnautica. Mm -hmm. Because I love 
scuba diving. I love sea life. I love all kind of stuff. But one of the health limits I have is because of some sinus issues, I was not able to pass what's called the Patty Open Water course. That's the last test you take before becoming scuba certified. And so Subnautica, for anyone who doesn't know, the setup of the game is that you're on a spaceship that gets shot down over an alien world, and you crash in a life pod by yourself. And you don't know why any of this has happened, because there's not supposed to be anybody on this planet. fish don't have guns. Yeah, I mean, that's more like, it's an ocean planet. Yeah. That's the name Subnautica. And you play most of the game underwater or in underwater habitats. And it was great because the VR headset I'm playing with actually has about the heft and feel of a dive mask. And I found that as I played the game, the rhythms of breathing that I would use while scuba diving or snorkeling I was subconsciously falling into. And so I was digging this game, loved it. Unfortunately, it's kind of like Minecraft in that you gather things, you build things, but there's also a plot. There's a mystery to solve and things to do. And it ended. I beat the game. And I'm like, well, I know they're making a spinoff game that's set on an Arctic world, but still underwater beneath the ice sheets. But it's not after that, a desert world. And then after that, were they going to go into space and jump the shark? I have no idea. But they don't have that game ready yet. How dare they? So, all right, this is where we get to the part I picked up a game I never thought I would pick up. Because this is a game, this is a bullet that I dodged when it came out because it was a freaking disaster. GoldenEye? No. It was more recent than that. I just want to piss a whole lot of people off. (laughs) Which is No Man's Sky. Ew. Because when No Man's Sky came out, they wildly overpromised and underdelivered. The game had very few things to do, had tons of bugs, blah, blah, blah. For anyone who doesn't know, it was released about three years ago. And this, like Spore, was going to be one of those, this is the last game you ever buy types of video games. That's that's overselling a little. Well, one of the interesting things that its makers, Hello Games, did was rather than pull a Todd Howard and just be like, meh, close enough, next title... They spent three years fixing the game. They have released tons of patches. They have released multiple DLCs slash expansions, all of which are free. You do not pay a dime for any of them. That radically rebuilt the game, added in tons and tons of features, added in multiplayer play, added virtual reality support. You can now like have your own fleet of capital ships that you work from added in all kinds of base building mechanics. I mean, they just completely revamped the game. So it is not even recognizable as the game that it was released as. The feature list they've added since release is just staggering. I like games with base building mechanics. I like being able to build up the base instead of just having whatever the game would give you otherwise. Yeah, and one of the cool things about it is like Subnautica being a VR game, you obviously play with a VR headset, which in this game you're in a spacesuit, so it kind of you know feels like the mask mm-hmm. you'd be wearing. But they did something that I know will never happen. When I first started messing around with VR, one of the first thoughts I had is, man, they really need to make a Fallout game where you physically interact with your weapons and you look at your pit boy by holding up your left wrist and touching your right hand to it. This game does that. You have a computer you wear on your left arm. There's a similar one on your right Payday arm. Payday 2 VR does that too. And you actually use it by taking 
the controllers, so you have like the controllers in your hands, you lift your left hand up and you actually start touching your left wrist and like a little computer display pops up with your right hand to navigate your personal computer. When you want to draw your gun, you actually reach your right hand over your back and pull the gun off of your back. When you want to use your scanning goggles, you actually put your left hand up to the side of your head and click to turn on the scanning module that's over your eyes. So nice. for a second there, I was thinking... That he's that over 3,000 or... No, or, that that would be a really cool, like, for an X-Men game, reaching up and hitting the visor to be do Cyclops like glass. But then and then I remembered Cyclops, Cyclops sucks. So. Yeah, Cyclops is <laughs> what a play him. Well, but, and I think for if that was the only game mechanic, it'd be kind of boring. But they just... I'm really impressed with the game. I mean, once again, I didn't play the original. I dodged that bullet. And I know it was awful. But if you picked up a copy of that game, reinstall it and let all the patches and updates load. Or if you don't have a copy and you've got a VR headset, or even you just like the concept of the game, and put it on your Steam wish list, wait for it to go on sale. That's what I did. It was during the Steam summer sale. I bought it for like 10 bucks, and I just now started playing it. And hmm. I would have happily paid full price for it. it it's absolutely worth it. All right, so we're going to go backwards now in the next one. We're going to do books. All right, so we're going to completely move away to the opposite end of electronics here. We're going to do books. These two don't read paper books. Do you read paper books? I know you do a lot of Audible stuff, and you don't read paper books well, at that, all. Well, that's fine. We'll go with, we'll with audio books yep. as long as what you're talking about is the book, not the narrator, yeah, not yep. the product. I, I want to hear about the manuscript, the, the yeah. content of the book. And I do still read some. Oh, do you? Okay. Yeah. At this point, I'm reading them on my iPad instead mm -hmm. of. Yeah. So I don't care if it's if it's audiobook or whatever, as long as what we're talking about is the text of the book, not the product of an audiobook or a radio drama. And, so I'm you did see that library th that you walked through. That's just whenever for show. I showed you my yeah, I know. Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, you have the many leather bound. And books. at dinner, he was talking about no. how he used to read or still does read bedtime stories to Larry. Mm. So the okay. book that I am currently reading, albeit very slowly is a book called War Before Civilization. And the setup of the book, it's a nonfiction book. The setup of the book is it's a guy who is, I don't remember what he actually is by trade, like an archaeologist or an anthropologist or something like that, who was trying to figure out what was society, specifically in terms of intersocietal violence like, before well-recorded history. Okay, So what was it like in these really super ancient civilizations that we don't have good records of when they fought a war. And he starts off by basically saying, up to this point in history, we have missed the boat. Because he says that really there are two models we've had for ancient civilizations. One is the Hobbesian view of what he calls progressive civilization, which not to be confused with political progressivism. But progressive civilization basically says that man is by nature in a state of misery, and civilization lifts man up out of that. And out of this, of course, you get some things like, you know, the white man's burden, and it's our job to bring civilization other people and such. And they talked about how on the opposite side of that, you had Rousseau, who created the view that is popularized today as the noble savage, that people lived in peace and harmony, and things like warfare and greed just were not known to them until big mean civilizations came in and brought it to them. What this guy lays out is he's like, it's basically all BS. 
But his central thesis, and he has a lot of evidence for this, is war today is child's play compared to what war used to be. Just the incredible brutality, the amount of deaths it would take before a war would cease compared to percentages of casualties today. It just was insane. And he talks about at length how he had real trouble at first convincing academia of these ideas because it didn't fit either model. It didn't fit the Hobbesian or, or Rousseau view of how these ancient civilizations were supposed to work. And he talks about, I think it was during digs in Belgium, he kept finding these towers near various places and he kept saying, I think these are guard towers. And they were like, no, that wasn't going on. War wasn't that formalized then. It has to have been like grain silos. But he kept finding them. And then they started computer mapping distributions of like arrowheads they were finding and starting to find they were indeed massive battle sites. Hmm. And he finally convinced people like, no, 4000 B.C. And these are defensive fortifications. You know, people Hmm. were slaughtering each other. But it's a fascinating read on what war was like before humanity was organized enough to really, I mean, forget professional army, forget the Roman model, to even think in terms of the Mesopotamian empire kind of thing. I mean, this is, it's fascinating stuff. So I could go with an audio book or a regular book and all, but what I'm going with, I'm going to go with a comic book. And this is a graphic novel and it's a autobiographical graphic novel by George Takei. It's called They Called Us Enemy. And it is his story of being a small child growing up when World War II broke out and being taken from his home into American concentration camps for the Japanese. Yeah. It is powerful. It's fascinating. It's like, I know about history. I know about what happened with all of that. But it's different to get it from the perspective of someone who grew up in it. Yeah. Not a adult who is experiencing it, not an adult who's talking about it or seeing it, but a child, what they're experiencing within the camps, their moments of happiness, their moments of horror, the entire thing. And then him as a adult and an activist going back and showing how parts of that helped influence his life, how that led him into acting his first meeting with Gene Roddenberry and why he was so into that character, you know, into Sulu. It is, I say it's powerful. It's a part of history that doesn't get talked about a lot. There's mention of it. And it was actually really fascinating. I talked to someone the other day who didn't realize that America wasn't the only country that did it. Canada also rounded up the Japanese and put them into intern camps. I'm sure there were other countries too, but it gets the conversation started and that's what he was trying to do with it. And he's trying to share his own personal experiences. He talks about how he got angry with his father for going along with it. He gets shifted from camps to camps and they talk about that. And I don't want to give any spoilers away for it because it was, I said it was a really strong tale and it's his own personal experiences with it. Very, you know, very touching, very deep, And it's just a perspective that I never had before reading it. Hmm. Well, what I am reading right now is called Hard Luck Ironclad. So I read Hamilton by Chernow, which is, you know, the musical is based on it. And uh, it was it was really good. And then later on, much later on, I picked up 
another of Chernow's book, his most recent one called Grant. It's about Ulysses S. Grant. I thought it was fascinating. It was really good. And it's really neat to me because especially in the parts where Grant is in St. Louis, I'm like down the street from where he lived, right? I can walk yeah. to Hardscrabble and I can walk into Hardscrabble from my house. And the Ulysses S. Grant uh, National Park Historic Site is right there as well. I got on Google Maps like him and Julia Dent's first home in downtown St. Louis parking lot now. You can go on Google Maps and go right to where it is. To me, it was so much more interesting and impactful than Hamilton because the Hamilton story was really good. But Hamilton was very private. You know, he was, he was a very outgoing public figure and that sort of thing. But he was a policy wonk. And he, he wrote and wrote and wrote and wrote and wrote. But everything he wrote was policy, right? And it was very influential policy. And everything that we know about Hamilton is actually the opinions of other people. Grant, though, is a little bit closer to our timeline and it is still a lot of other people writing about it because he was a very shy, very private person, but he was also a lot more open about who and what he was, a very honest person. It painted a much more colorful picture of the man. Now, I read a lot of history, and I especially love biographies. I, I read a lot of biographies. I don't really read books about war, not the war book you're talking about, Dan, but about like there were this many people at this battle of Shiloh and they fired this many bullets at this date and this many people died. And, you know, I'm not into that. I'm more into the people. So in reading Grant, I read about ironclads, specifically the Cairo. And well, it was more about the battle of Vicksburg in that book. And I really like James Eads. I find James Eads fascinating, and there are no books about him. There, there's like one from like 1810 that I tried to read, and it's awful. It's just it terrible. Wasn't it a guy who, yeah, who, there was misspellings, and he yeah. was just like James Eads is second Jesus, and it's just oh, he's just yeah. great. Or, or or or, and it's like I remember this on. weird propaganda. It was book, it yeah. was it was a propaganda piece for James Eads after he was dead. James E. is so fascinating to me because the history of the Eats Bridge is really cool uh, about how he had to go to war with the steamboat companies. And they made these ridiculous laws about a bridge because he wanted to bring rail in. And he made the largest iron structure on the planet and the largest bridge on the planet at that time. And then they spread all kind of propaganda about how it was unsafe. And he hired a marching band and elephants to march across it in a parade to prove it was safe. And it took both Which carriages. Which is a lot and, nicer than what Edison did with elephants. Right. <laughs> and it did both trains and it did car. Well, not car. It did carriages and yeah, stuff. Yeah, carriage and pedestrian traffic. And it is still there today. And we have reused it. We have cars going across the original structure and our subway system in St. Louis uses it as well. And he also, he made his money with diving bells. He salvaged wrecked steamships on the Mississippi. He has this quote, I, I'm misquoting it, but it's something like he's the only person to travel the entire length of the Mississippi on its bottom. <laughs> <laughs> By like age of 30 or something, he was a multimillionaire because he of the salvage operation, these, these diving bells and stuff. Well, Civil War rolls around and the, the Union needs a river flotilla. I mean, we have steamboats, paddle boats and stuff, for transports, but we don't have like warship. We have gunboats, but they're really just normal boats we put guns on, right? And so Washington draws up this plan for some ironclads, and then they start taking bids on it. And Eads is a real patriot. Eads is like, and he's really rich, and also he's a genius and he's bored. So he's like, I will make you six ironclads 
based on your design, I will undercut every single other shipbuilder building them or, or putting in bids for them. And I will fine myself like $200 a day for every day I'm late, which was real money back then, right? Oh. It is a story that I didn't know existed that these ironclads, these city-class ironclads, which are really cool looking, were built in St. Louis. They're built in Mount St. Illinois, and they're building Crondelet. And I've been to Crondelet, again, right near my house. I can yeah. drive there in 10 minutes. Love the story, right? But it's just this really, really tiny footnote and some Wikipedia reading I was doing from Grant. So in kind of looking at this, this whole James Eads thing, because I cannot find anything on James Eads. He's like this forgotten, really interesting person. And I come to find out that the only Civil War ironclad that you can actually walk inside of, touch, and see is in Vicksburg. And they have an entire museum based around it. And it hit a mine, uh, a torpedo, actually. You know, damn, the torpedoes are talking about mines. It hit one of the first electronically activated mines in existence and sunk to the bottom of the Yazoo River. Every person survived, and it stayed at the bottom of the river for 100 years because the river shifts and stuff, and then the war was going on. They, they, there was thoughts of trying to salvage it, and then it was forgotten. It was brought up in the 60s, and they built a mu museum around it. And I'm like, I'm going to go see this thing. And I'm going to go to Vicksburg. And I'm looking at Vicksburg Park. You could hire a battlefield guide. And this was really, really neat. I paid 50 bucks for two hours. Actually, I had to pay more. I had to pay 75 bucks because I, I kept him going so long. We were there for three hours. And a battlefield guide at Vicksburg. They also do this at Gettysburg. Vicksburg is a licensed battlefield guide who they test and examine. It's not just somebody who reads some Wikipedia article, somebody like me who just reads a lot of books. I mean, they have to know their crap, right? I go there. Pay the guys, or no, I, I don't pay him then. You know, I, I reserved him. Just me, not part of a group, not part of package, anything like that. I just called and made the reservation. He gets in my car and he drives me around Vicksburg, the town, pointing stuff out, telling me all the history, all the stories, all the this, that, and the other. Drives me around Battlefield Park, which again, I'm not into battlefields. This guy made it amazing. Told me all these stories, all this cool stuff. Found out I was from Missouri. Focused on a lot of the Missouri stuff. Told me all kind of Missouri facts about the Missouri, because there were Missouri Southern units, Missouri Northern units there. We went to all the Missouri monuments, all the stuff. It was so neat. Get to the Cairo, and it's the USS Cairo that got sunk, or as I was told, the Cairo, which made me cringe each time. But the Cairo was there, the USS Cairo. And he walked me around it, and he was telling me all the facts about the Cairo and all that sort of stuff. And then he mentioned to me that... The guy who brought this up, he was a National Park Service guy. And in the 60s, he gets assigned to Vicksburg. And they're talking to some farmers in the area or something like that. And uh, the farmer's like, well, you boys want to see that ironclad? And they're like, what? Because <laughs> all the ironclads north and south had been sunk. If you go to see an ironclad that isn't the Cairo, that's Civil War ironclad, it is like half of a keel, right? I mean, there's nothing left of these things. There are a couple in museums, but there's nothing left. And they're like, are you kidding me what do you mean see it and they're like yeah it when the river stage is low if you go on to this bend of the yazoo river which is one of like the tributaries of the mississippi or something like that you can see the top of the pilot house if you're lucky what <laughs> and they're like holy shit. and so they're like okay well you know this is probably nothing we're getting all excited here let's go and see and so they got a boat there are like three of them. It's like, hey, yeah, we're really what we're going to do is we're going to drink some beers and troll around on a boat. 
and we're going to poke the ground, the river with metal, long metal poles, see if we hit something. And then they had this, this thing where they were going to use like a spectrometer or something, this, this device to sense metal, not just a metal detector. It's like this device they got from a university or something. But the university was like, no, you can't have it anymore. You're going to drop it in the river. And so they used a compass, like a Boy Scout compass. And when the needle started to move irregularly, they knew that there was enough metal right under them at this low stage of the river that it might be something. Then again, it could be just like an old tractor somebody tossed in too. So they do it, and the first day out, they find it. Well, they find something, and the cops are going crazy. They got the poles and stuff, and then they get some divers in there, and then they start bringing up stuff like, oh, you know, Civil War Union naval guns, like pistols, and other artifacts. Like, uh, we found it. And it's intact. I mean, it hit a mine. It's got a big-ass hole in it, but it's there. So anyway, he's, he's telling me all this. And the museum has all of these artifacts that they had cleaned up. Sort of everything from daguerreotypes to weapons to mess kits to the bell of the ship was there. All this fascinating. I'm walking around inside of this ironclad. All the armor is there. The engines are there. The paddle wheels, the pistons, the cannons are there. The ports is amazing, right? And then he's like, and I actually had just finished the book I was reading when I had come down. And he's like, yeah, the guy who led this thing, who who found it and lifted it up and all this sort of stuff, the, the parks employee, was apparently like one of the legendary battlefield guides, like would wow people and, and you know, just tell all these great stories. He's well, he, he had he was dead by that point, but it, he was just legendary in the service. And like it, it talked about how he had. 50 deaf people come as a tour and he was able to tour them around and tell his stories to them and stuff. And he was able to, to handle that and manage it. Anyway, he wrote a book about it. And in the book, he's like, if you are reading this book on how to salvage a 100 year old ship off the bottom of a river, you need to find another book because it was the sixties. No one had done this before. And we broke the ship in half. <laughs> <laughs> and, and it's just like this is how not to do it it is a miracle this thing we were able to get this thing and uh yeah we toured around and then we went back we finished up the thing and i watched a cannon demo where they fired a 12 pound cannon that was from the civil war and then they were firing muskets doing musket demos and stuff and then i drove back to the cairo cairo museum and I just walked around it, not with it, just by myself and really looking at everything. And then I went to their gift shop and they had a copy of the book. And this is not like Harper Collins publishing or Random House or anything like this. This is like Yazoo University Press. It's in the Library of Congress. I don't even know if you can find it on Amazon. Maybe you can. I don't know. So I picked it up and it's really good. It's really, really good because it starts out with the story with the compass and, and then finding it and the crazy farmer and stuff. And then it's like, we found it. Now what do we do? And then the, it stops. And it's like, let's go back in time. James Eats, sitting there, patriot, bored, eccentric, genius millionaire. And then it goes through and it talks about all the city class ironclads. It talks about the fights. It talks about the battle. You, Dan, you were talking about how you, your dad took you to Memphis because that's where he's from. Look at the Civil War size. It goes into the ironclad battle at Memphis and about how, well, the Confederates fought well, but they really took a drubbing and about how we captured a bunch of their ships. And it, it goes through all the, all the people, all the players and stuff. And I'm still going through that, and it's going to go through to the Cairo hitting the torpedo, and then it's going to go jump 
to the future, present, past, because it's the 60s, of them pulling the Cairo up off of the river. And it is really interesting, really interesting book. It's got pictures, too. How do I follow that up? <laughs> I don't know if whatever illiterate-ass thing you're doing right now. All right. Read books. All right. So the current book that I'm reading right now is Norse Mythology by Neil Gaiman. And it's got is that one... a fiction or is it? No, no. Okay, it, this is... it, he took all of the Norse myths, modified them just enough so that way they made a one single cohesive story. Mm-hmm. And it's a retelling of them. Hmm, so it, interesting. It, it is as close to the short of learning Old Norse and reading it. Right. You know, that, that's as good as you're going to get. Oh, that's pretty cool. Yeah. Uh, it's got an awesome quote here that I just have to share. No one, then or now, wanted to drink the mead out of Odin's ass. <laughs> <laughs> right. I mean, why not? <laughs> it's the Allfather. I mean, he has one eye. Yeah, this that is a fairly one. that one. <laughs> this is a fairly recent book too, because I remember when it came yeah. out within the last year, two years or so. Yeah, interesting. I just am not a Neil Gaiman fan, so I passed mm. on it. Yeah, I, I did initially too, but then I was just like listening to it on Audible, and it's read by Neil Gaiman, and I was just like, oh, you know, a little, uh, uh, why not give it a try? Just Neil Gaiman's voice is great for uh, for listening, and the stories are very entertaining. Highly mm. recommended. But the book I actually want to talk about is Becoming Superman by J. Mac. Straczynski. In case you are not sure where you heard the name before, he's the Red creator of right? uh, Babylon 5. Ah. That's John oh, Scalzi. Sure. Oh, Scalzi. Yeah. Yep. Yep. You're right. Sorry. Yeah. Straczynski's done a lot of comic work. He did Babylon yeah. 5. He's he very well known in the comic industry. Gotcha. Yeah. Sense 8. He's done Changeling. Did the 9 11 issue of Spider Man, Amazing Spider Man. Yeah. It's his autobiography telling the story of how he grew up with. A man who is, for all intents and purposes, a Nazi, as in, like... Like literal Hitler, not as, just pinhead in the South. In uh, 1939, he was in Poland whenever mm. the Nazis invaded and uh, befriended various uh, Nazis. Gotcha. So, yeah, so actual literal Nazi. Mm. You know, and how that type of psychology affected him and all of the terrible things that his father did and how he tried to basically be a counter his father and be a good person because of it and somewhere along the line he decided i'm gonna be an author oh crap i actually have to be good at things like writing and school <laughs> and things like that so you know he it's his personal journey it's very compelling it does sound interesting i mean when it comes to Straczynski, he is very hit or miss for me when yeah. he hits it's absolutely incredible yeah, yeah. when he part. misses i really hate it yeah yeah and so i It'd be interesting to see what led him to hmm. being who he is. Oh, he he talks about everything. He talks about uh, his entire writing career, you know, how he got into, you know, doing television and how he got a reputation many, many times for being hard to work with and somehow, you know, got his career salvaged out of nowhere. Hmm. Very interesting. Very well entertaining. Interesting. Well, that's yeah. two books I might pick up. Yeah. And the audiobook also for that one is read by Peter Jurisic. Yeah, I can't. Londo do... Malari from uh, Babylon Five for those. Oh, that, uh, yeah, I can't do audiobooks. I'm not good at multitasking, and it just is so relaxing. It puts me asleep. Yeah, oh. I do audiobooks a lot when, like, when I was going to the gym, I would mm-hmm. do them in the gym. Mm-hmm. When I would go hiking with the dogs, I do then. I listen to them in the car mostly. Sure. Though. Uh, you see, I use audiobooks mostly to help me fall asleep mm, nowadays. There you go. Yeah, I mean, you know, this way, you know, you hear a nice tale and someone uh, reads you to sleep. And if you just can't sleep that night, you are going to hear a very nice <laughs> yeah. story. You're at least going to be creatively productive. Exactly. Way, yeah. Huh. 
I was listening to a recording, and it's actually intended to be a relaxing, help you fall asleep thing. It's very bizarre, like what it is. But like, it's Morgan Freeman reading the tax code of the U.S.? Or? No, it's just, uh, you wouldn't expect this. It is John Cleese telling a story about a lavender festival in France. Hmm. Like th- These are just not nouns yeah. you would expect to go together. And it is one of the most calming and relaxing. And if you fall asleep, you're going to miss hearing out about some stuff with lavender. You're really you're right. Yeah. And you know, you yeah. can pick that up the next night. Yeah, maybe. It's, precisely. Yeah. It's not like it, it's not riveting. That's right. And that's the point. point. Yeah. yeah. He, he huh. has a very soothing voice. He does. You just don't, you wouldn't think of him. Which as is that. So I have weird. no idea who he is. You ever watch faulty Monty towers? Python? Yeah. 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 Monty Python. I've watched. But yeah. He's like one of the main guys. Yeah. On yeah. Monty Python. You should really watch faulty towers. It's really funny. And if you watch faulty towers and then listen to Dan's story, you're like, how is this guy relaxing? Yeah, yeah. exactly. Because he's I, he's the tall one. Uh, <laughs> right. Yeah, how's that? Ministry of Silly Walks, the guy okay. who does the big leg. Yeah, that's now him. I yeah. know who you're talking. Yeah, about. That's, okay. that's it's like I said, it's very bizarre. But mm-hmm. anyway, so we only got through two things. We did video games and books. So Assassin's uh, Creed Origin. Even if you don't like video games, six bucks for the tour. So maybe, hard luck, Ironclad. If you can find it, it is fascinating. And if anyone is out there who knows of a good James Eads bio, send it to me. I don't think it exists. So maybe on a future one, we'll come back (laughs) to movies and TV shows. But that's enough for now. So thank you guys for tuning in. Have a great week and great games. And we will catch you next time. See ya. (laughs) 